Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Lab's Chief Talking Officer. And I'm speaking from the land where the weather is always changing, the UK, in a particularly small village called London. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a tech leader, a tech leader with integrity at his heart and a champion of diversity, and with some wonderful advice from his leadership voyage. Please welcome our guest, Mikhail. So, welcome to CTO Confessions, Macau. How are you, my friend? Hi, Dizzy. Well, I'm really well, thanks. And well, thanks for inviting me. So, it's a pleasure being here. Yeah, it's brilliant. So, so tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Who do you work for? Yeah, I mean, I kind of work for Revolut. I used to work for Football Index as of last week. And I'm a tech leader, which basically means that I spend my time in optimizing how technology companies work end to end. Brilliant. Yeah, excellent. And, and whereabouts in the world are you based? I'm based in London and I'm originally from Rome in Italy. Oh, wicked. Yeah, I can tell the accent there a little bit, you know. Um, yeah, bring a little bit of Italian passion to, to, the, to the UK. That's excellent. And so in terms of your history, your journey towards becoming a tech leader, um, let's give us a, a, an idea of what that looked like. Yeah, I mean, I arrived in London about seven years ago, and I basically like was working as a backend engineer. Then eventually, I got to lead teams, and then you know things escalate, and you find yourself leading leading an area, three, four teams, then a department. Now the thing is that you know at the core, I'm a problem solver, and you tend to see that in companies, problems are rarely about technology when you do a root cause analysis. Like almost everything that's good or wrong. Mm. can be attributed to people and how they interact with each other. Yes, yeah. Um, and so in terms of your journey towards becoming a tech leader, because uh, you mentioned that you're kind of a back-end, mm -hmm. backroom engineer, you know, you've kind of done your, you've done your tour, you know, of, of NARM, you know, development NARM. Um, so what, what kind of advice would you give aspiring tech leaders out there listening to this? Yeah, I mean, one of the pieces of advice I would give is basically read a lot, expand your horizons and never stop learning. You know, there's a tendency in society in general and in particular in software engineering in over-specializing people, but it never pays off in tech because, you know, the technology is the framework we use today, won't be there in three, five years. Yeah. And the principles you need to learn is, you know, how to manage people, how to escalate problems, how yeah. to learn things fast. So basically, like study, study a lot, and study outside of your comfort zone. Yes, that's right. It's like a, I mean, obviously, in, in software we have continuous development, but it's kind of continuous mm -hmm. personal development. Um, actually, being a, a kind of certified coach myself, I um, one of the things I, I learned from clients, which kind of really speaks to what you just said there, is is that um, you have to be continuously learning. You know, this is what I think as, as human beings, that's the kind of spirit. Um, that's what really drives us. You know, to be constantly growing. Um, so one of the things I notice about you, Mikel, is is that. You're very passionate. Now, is that is that purely an Italian thing? Um, uh, where's that come from? Yeah. I mean, it, it comes from, you know, partially being responsible for outcomes. You know, when you're responsible to make a difference, you don't 
you cannot afford not to be passionate about it, right? So the thing is, once again, I'm a problem solver, people throw problems my way, and you need to be passionate because you need to understand the problems. And more importantly, like when you work with other people, you need to be able to explain to people why you're doing things and why they would help. And whether it's, you know, your boss or a fellow employee or a director report, it's the same. Yeah, I like that. I love the why, you know, always speaking to the why. It reminds mm-hmm. you of uh, Simon Sinek, you know, his uh, the yeah. why, you know, what, what, why are yeah, we sure. doing this? And and that's always good to get, get curious. Um, and, and the other thing as part of your passion, I think your passion feeds into this and in the conversations that we had off podcast is around being a disruptor. Now, I'm a disruptor as well, and I love fellow disruptors, you know. Um, so what, what kind of drives that disruption, uh, wanting to change thinking and change the way things are? It's it's interesting. I mean, this is also like something that, you know, we was like extreme programming in 1999, so not so extreme anymore, you would think. Mm. But still, not many companies are actually working that way, right? And the thing yeah. is, there are some practices and management policies that feel natural and feel like common sense. But then when you really like ask yourself, why are we doing this thing? What are the consequences of this? You know, this problem that we got, where does it originate from? Right. And sometimes you need to be ready to question anything in order to get better. You cannot start from how we do things and then derive the what. You need to decide what you want and then derive how to get there. Yeah. I like that kind of setting the stake of, you know, mm-hmm. and then also also everybody agreeing on that, you know, this is what we want. And then you can, then you can disrupt in that direction, I guess, you know, people get mm-hmm. on board with the disruption. It, it creates a kind of uh, a leadership direction. Um, and also uh, around um, one of the things I've noticed about you. Okay. I mean, it sounds, sounds, sounds almost like, uh, you know, um, you know, integrity. You, you've obviously got integrity, um, and, and there's something around doing the right thing, even when nobody's watching. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thanks. I mean, this is quite a compliment, so I hope I can hold up to that. And uh, <laughs> I would also expect that from most professionals. And you know, this has far-reaching implications. You know, obviously, the way people reward their employees in a company or the way they punish them sometimes, which is also quite odd, greatly influence their behavior, right? And I think that integrity when it comes to this, you know, being a software engineer in one of these companies is setting a boundary, which is, you know, this is what I'm being rewarded for, but is it the right thing? As in, is it easier for me to game their way of, you know, reviewing my performance or should I actually do the right thing whatever that means right or if i don't agree with this way of running things should i not live instead yes yeah i love that i'm yeah i'm I totally take my hat off to you uh, and anyone else that has integrity and does the right thing when nobody's watching because uh, i think that's a real sign of character and we need more people like that in the world i believe <laughs> anyway coming <laughs> off my soapbox um so in terms of interest what 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 rocks your boat what what's what's the thing that really drives you Mikhail? Well, I mean, as I mentioned already, like extreme programming, agile in general, continuous delivery, you know, theory of constraints. These are like my, uh, well, I'm distributed systems, I guess. These are like my work interest. Outside of work, I'm mostly into like martial arts and fitness. Oh, wow. What kind of martial arts do you do? So I used to do like Wing Chun for a while. I tried a little bit of boxing, a little bit of other stuff. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, it's interesting because um, uh, I'm watching a, a program with my daughter, loves watching it, Cobra Kai. You know, the old... Oh, uh, yeah, 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 uh, what was the original films? A Karate Kid, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, it, but it's interesting, actually, just as a kind of a uh, bit of a sidetrack on our kind of leadership discussion here. Um, it's interesting from martial arts, the kind of um, discipline and... Um, mm -hmm. A kind of nobility of of what you're doing you know i i, I like that there's a there's I, I find a lot of parallels between like martial arts and software engineering and that's also probably why a lot of software engineers are actually attracted to martial arts which is the idea of decoding a problem using knowledge mm. which is you know as a martial artist you win fights not because you're faster or stronger but because you know what you're doing yeah. And these applies a lot in software engineering as well. Yes, I love that. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I'm going to write that down in my journal, you know. Um, <laughs> things will work out if I know what I'm doing. You know, it's, mm. sometimes you kind of lose track of the, well, we're just kind of doing stuff. But that's great. And um, and in terms of your leadership, so as, as CTO Confessions, you know, um, mm -hmm. it's about tech leaders uh, confessing their, their wins, mm -hmm. their wisdom and what have you. Um, so what are the things in your leadership that, that really worked for you? What, what's the what's the wisdom that you'd like to impart? What's worked for you? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I hope I'll be able to impart some wisdom, assuming that I have some. But the, the other sure thing is, know. I mean, <laughs> one of the fundamental principles I got is, you know, my management style revolves around giving people a lot of context, spending time to, you know, tell them why we want something, why it's important to get in a specific way. Yes. And then trusting them to do their job. Because at the end of the day, you know, I spend a lot of time hiring stellar people and it would be incredibly naive to tell them exactly how to do their job. Actually, most of the times they know how to do their job better than I do. Wow. Right? Yes. Yeah. And as such, you know, I would, I would be naive in not trying to retain these exceptional people I pride myself on working with. We any means necessary, right? So yeah. obviously, you know, I like working in engineering cultures where you really care about your people, and that includes everything from, you know, compensation, way of working, culture, autonomous decisions, you know, removing blockers and status yeah. updates and anything else that doesn't push yeah. value delivery forward. Wow, yeah, that's, I like that. It's, um, and in terms of the kind of makeup of your teams, I mean, what kind of, what do your teams look like? What so, so rather, what's the ideal team that you kind of see that you, you yeah, like towards yeah, yeah, of course. So it's a good question. I mean, I tend to find myself preferring small teams, so five maximum six people. In cases where teams are absolutely top quality, there's hardly um, a need for a tech lead in terms of someone who's responsible for making tech decisions. I tend to find working with people managers within a team easier, as in they got a different set of responsibilities. Yeah. I want, in general, cross-functional teams because teams tackle problems, not features. Yes. And um, I think diversity is crazy important when you balance the team, as in you want people which come from different backgrounds, perspectives, and have different skill sets, because once again, I'm not being a house, you know, it's not repeatable work. This is like composing music. So you need people which come with different influences. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. It's um, yeah, the analogy of music. It's uh, they've got to bring their skills and and exercise mm -hmm. them. And and yeah, so coming on to the kind of diversity of thinking, because this is an area that I am very passionate about. I'm, I'm very passionate about diversity anyway, because I think uh -huh. we all have our um, 
you know things that you know differences that we can bring to to make something bigger than uh, and better so in terms in terms of how do you make sure that you have diversity of thinking or diversity in general uh, in your groups yeah unfortunately you know it's, it's a very delicate problem right so basically diversity is an absolute goal as in against a strategy you know obviously it's also a moral thing where you know you don't want to be biased towards this person or that person just because of who they are yes but it remains a strong strategy right there is a strategic value in having diversity now the one is that you know you need to find a balance between being aggressive and say i don't know oh i need someone who looks that way or comes from comes from this background which yeah. it's slippery slope or you know basically like fighting against biases at all levels so as an example you know that's confirmation bias people look for people that look and behave like them and so as long as you do a good job in you know writing down what these biases are and you know and realizing that we all are affected by them yeah. you can do something to counteract their effects yes yeah i like that um i think i think it is important to to be conscious of your own thinking you know thinking mm -hmm. about your thinking around it because uh, you can end up going down some rabbit holes and stuff this, yeah this is a big problem in general in tech not only just about diversity the problem is that you know every human being instinctively thinks that their thought process is correct and it rarely is for everybody yes that's right. Yeah, I think that's very true. I'm I'm guilty of sin, you know. I I, I sometimes yeah. think that all the time, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I, I and unfortunately, I work with uh, some great leaders that uh, I, I trust, and they give me a reflection as to where I'm going with my thinking, so they kind of question it. So that's good. Um, actually, in terms of your leadership, then, um, how do you facilitate that kind of thing? Somebody questioning your thinking. Um, I, well, first of all, I mean, I go to a great length uh, in telling people that they should, as in I actually expect that. Now, I'm not a big fan of like personal objectives, but if I was, one of them would be that. As in, from my perspective, if you work with me, you know, in my area, and I'm doing something that doesn't make sense, it is your professional responsibility to tell me. Otherwise, why are you there? I don't need hands, I need other pair of eyes. Yes, I love that. And the other thing is I go to a great length in explaining to team leads and every manager in the organization why it's important that we gather, you know, ideas far and wide, why it's important we challenge what we do and how we do it. Yes. Yeah, that's good. And, and just going to touch on um, a subject, you know, we've all got sisters, wives, uh, partners, mothers, and um, diversity of kind of, um, you know, women in, in engineering. It, is this, is this something that you're finding is getting better or are we there? Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex and multivariate problem, right? So the thing is, there is definitely like a, a bias towards males in IT, which is, you know, irrefutable. The, the numbers speak for themselves. Mm. On the other hand, it's hard because, as an example, some IT companies in London are expecting to have, I don't know, a 50-50 yeah. percent split which is hard because if you look at the candidates coming from universities around europe is not at that level and so you know i think it's more like a, a problem with society that reflects itself into you know software development yes. as well yes that's right i agree um just to kind of uh, one of the things i love about 
uh, IT Labs, who's sponsoring this podcast, is um, 95% of the leadership is women, which is really interesting. And that hasn't been an active program. It's a, it's a, it's a thing. Uh, and as, as, as you know, Mikhail, you know, uh, on the previous calls, we had uh, some of our tech tech engineers on there. You know, so yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think it is a cultural thing. I agree with you. It's there's a there's a deeper underlying kind of current uh, that you know needs to be addressed. So, so coming on to kind of leading in the COVID era, right? So we've all gone suddenly external, uh, remote, away from each other. What do you miss being in the room with teams, or, or do you go into rooms with teams? Yeah, I still tend to go every now and then. Obviously, I mean, complying with government regulations that are pretty strict these days. But you know, I absolutely miss it. I usually love working from the office. And the thing is, you know, a lot of companies they rushing and saying things like, "Oh, we're gonna completely like get rid of our offices, save money. Everybody's gonna be able to work from remote forever, right?" Mm. But because we found out that it actually works. And it's kind of funny because, I mean, for to me, your office is an asset you're giving to your employees. And if your employees feel like it's a prison, you're getting seriously wrong, right? Yes. The thing is, of course, I can work from home whenever I want. It was the same thing before COVID. I mean, especially in software, if you don't have flexibility in this sense, I mean, I, I don't even know where to start. But yeah. the point is, the office is a collaboration space. It allows people to, you know, have sound isolation, have high-end gadgets, have, you know, not having to cope with multiple people in the same room doing video conferences at the same time, right? Yeah. And and so to an extent is an asset. Nobody ever thought, oh my God, I need to force my employees to work on site because I don't trust them. It's definitely not my style. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I, actually, actually, that's a really interesting perspective because you always think work is a place I have to go to, but it's but it's mm -hmm. an offering, you know, to kind of a place to come and, and uh, yeah, that, that opens up a really interesting lens. In fact, I feel a blog post coming on around that. That's uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, and and this kind of comes onto something that you mentioned uh, in our discussions off, off the record, um, which was a continuous isolation, right, to avoid it. Um, and of course, in these kind of like working remotely, that's kind of being amplified potentially even more. What, what are your thoughts on that continuous isolation? Yeah, I mean, I obviously cannot get the credit for, for the quote. I don't even remember where I read it. It's been years. But anyway, so the thing is, in software, there is this uh, concept of continuous integration, which means that your continuous is supposed to merge code into one single repository. And, you know, as a deviation, uh, this continuous isolation is a form of working that uh, it's quite popular in companies that do things like dark agile or dark scrum, which are perversions of the original message, where basically, you know, developers work in isolation and they don't actually collaborate. What they do is somehow they got task assignments and these tasks are somewhat related and they kind of build on top of each other to produce something, right. but they don't actually work together on the day to day. It's the same as having I don't know, two different doctors in two different offices within the same hospital, mm. visiting different patients or actually having a team that performs a surgery. One is a team and the two doctors aren't a team. They just happen to work in the same building. Right, yes. I think I think that's, um, that, that is important because I, mean, I, I must admit, being a software engineer many years ago, many years ago, embedded software engineer, um, I, I used to work in a very isolated manner 
And uh, and actually, I found it really depressing because you know, as yeah. a, uh, I think you know, as human beings, we are social creatures. And uh, yeah, I'm not saying everybody has to work in a team and or what have you, but it, yeah, I think a lot of people do yearn that and that collaboration. You know, meeting of ideas and I um, and and also being met in terms of what's right. You know, the why yeah. is that why you should be doing that. So I think that's important. And of course, pair programming is this something that you still use in terms of your, your remote teams? Yeah, absolutely. Remote on site is all the same to me. It's a massive facilitator or reverend software engineering. You put two people on a problem, you know, there's a reason why cops going in pairs on cars, yeah, right? And they help each other, they kind of guard against each other. Is you know, it's another pair of eyes that always call back support. It, it's just a smart way of working in general. Yeah. I have you ever read the book, The Six Hats of Thinking? I think it's The Six Hats of Thinking. Have you ever read that? No, not yet. Yeah, I've got the hats here somewhere. But I love that because um, when you mentioned about the cops, you know, the good cop and the bad cop, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think, you know, again, people collaborating and pairing up, you get this kind of like critical critiquing uh, between what each other are doing. Um, but I love the six hats because you can look at it from different lenses, you know, uh, the the kind of green, uh, blue, um, black, you know, this is rubbish, this is never going to oh. work, you know, and, and and then find a better way, you know. In fact, I, I need to read that book again because I think that's a, that's a useful one for teams. Um, so coming on to kind of obviously your teams at the moment, are they in-house or are they externals? So, I mean, uh, speaking of recent experiences, we tend to basically prefer teams in-house, where in-house means that, you know, on a normal normal times, they will be working mostly from the office. Now, once again, what does it mean? Does it mean that uh, they cannot work from home wherever they want? Yeah, of course they work, they, they can, but, you know, it's more like a trend. And we tend to basically favor uh, permanent employees rather than, you know, outsourcing or contractors. Yes. Yeah. So um, in terms of and and the honesty here, because I have experience, I I have been a contractor myself and I've seen really good Mm -hmm. contractors. I've seen, (laughs) I don't know what they were, but they call themselves contractors. Um, So, I mean, what's your experience of being uh, of of working with outsourced kind of teams, you know, honest, your honest kind of view? So, I mean, in theory, so the problem is this, right? which is how do you motivate an outsourced team, right? And it's typically through compensation. These people are contractors. So you give them a job to do and then they do it, right? Yes. And and I tend to see that in the companies that I like working for, which are like fast startups that's, you know, pride themselves for product delivery, doesn't seem to work that much because our work is not like, oh, there is something relatively straightforward, very well specified that we can just end off and it will get done. Yeah. But it's more like it's close collaboration with product, with data teams, experiment, figure out what our problems are, and have a deep domain knowledge of our customers and our code bases as well. So, yeah. you know, if there was something like an integration with a third party, and if it was critical and if it didn't require any prior knowledge of our systems, yeah, why not? Perhaps. Yes. But but it's not usually the the main trend for me. Yes, that's right. Is it, it what I'm hearing is is that there's a there's a need for people to understand the deeper uh, understanding of what you're working on. It's not just about delivering code. Um, where we, um, you know, code monkeys, you know, just knocking mm-hmm. out code. It's about understanding the products as a whole, understanding the, the customer needs, the, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and being motivated by wanting to solve problems for customers, not wanting to meet the deadline for this external company that asked me to do some job. 
Yes, I agree. I, and being a contractor um, myself, I, I know the experience. Uh, I've seen people like that. Me personally, it, it was about delivering value, you know, and that, if that meant the customer, then that's customer. So that's that's great. So coming on to another area, which we kind of mentioned your kind of passion, what are your pains and passions? What what are the things that really drive you um, in terms of your kind of leadership? And uh, what are the things that keep you up at night? So, yeah, interesting question. Um, so in terms of passions, I mean, we already mentioned them around agile and to making like, you know, creating a culture where people are happy about showing up on Monday morning. And, and you know, primarily because it, it goes both ways, right? So if they are happy to show up on Monday morning, then typically I am, which, you know, makes my life easier as well. Yeah. In terms of pain is so the amount of like misconceptions and ingrained wrong ways of working and wrong assumptions that are pervasive in the industry, even in places like London, which are considered to be like, a, you know, a light of hope in the darkness compared to other areas of the world when it comes to software delivery. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. That's quite, that's, I mean, that's, um, so what do you think the solution to that then is? It's, it's a really hard one. I mean, the thing is, there are some reasons why these problems are widespread. So typically there is an assumption having companies that are run by people who specialize in business, as an example, which is a really good thing for some things and probably bad things for others. Mm. There is, a, you know, not enough delegation. There are not enough good working models. This is an example, if you take um, how Netflix works, they can demonstrate that, you know, there are some unorthodox ways of working, which actually work really well, right? Oh, and they can bring a lot of business results, right? Yes. But, but it's not the standard. People would always say, oh, you know, Netflix can do that because they're Netflix, while actually it's more like the other way around. They are Netflix because they work like that. Yes. And, and it's really hard to, to explain that to people who don't understand software delivery. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, and I guess this is going to speak into that big thing, uh, communication, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of improving the communication, um, how how do you make sure that, you, for example, you communicate the vision, the, the customer's mm-hmm. needs and what have you? What's your tips around that? Yeah, I mean, once again, it's to keep it really informal, which becomes hard when you scale, right? So when a company becomes too big, the tendency is to centralize everything and need to know basis because they want to reduce risk without investing into good people, which from my experience is impossible. So the thing is, you know, when a startup is in its early stages, like 40, 50 people, everybody knows everybody, you know, the, the context is everywhere. You can access founders and every other role in the company, like for coffee and have a chat and they all you know, beers together or whatever, like really works for them. And at some point, what tends to happen is, oh, now they are 200 people. So you need departments, middle management, HR. How do we reduce the risk that someone can do something stupid and cost us money? Yeah. And instead of, you know, keeping departments small and independent and making sure that we hire only incredibly good people so that we don't have to be afraid all the time, and instead of giving them a lot of context, what they do is they create gateways and guidelines and practices and enforce things and, yeah. and it kills productivity and morale and the best people tend to lead. 
Yeah, that's right. I I think for me it, it kills the uh, the the I don't know the essence of being humans coming together. You mm -hmm. know? That yeah. kind of tribal feeling that, um, I mean, uh, this is a topic that I could talk about for hours. It, it stifles humanity, I think. Um, yeah, so, I so, and into, when you could, let's say, for example, you come to an organization and then they have this over, over centralized, lots of rules mm -hmm. and, and knowing that you're a disruptor and you're kind of passionate. How do you um, transform environments like that? Where do you start? <laughs> so the first thing you typically, I mean, it depends in which capacity you join the company. So, you know, there are two possibilities. You're either an executive who has been brought in to fix these problems or you're not. Yeah. And approach changing slightly, right? Regardless, you need to build trust as a first thing, which can be hard because the problem is that people would... So imagine you join a company, right? And there are other executives and you're brought in to fix some of the problems they perceive. Now, the thing is, in a normal company, you're never going to be able to fix the, the actual root causes from the get-go. Yes. What they want you is to prove yourself by fixing some small issues and then tackle larger and larger issues. But it typically doesn't work because the root causes are on the very left and the problems are on the very right. Yes. And if you fix problems on the right in the big scheme of things, doesn't change much. And so you cannot prove yourself by fixing something because you're not allowed to actually fix the root causes yet right right so typically what you do is you're trying to you know talk and like really like train to an extent other executives and other stakeholders which can be at all levels and give them some sort of indication of why some things might be work be working that way or not working out well and yeah. then trying to basically show that you know it all boils down to some assumptions some management practices mm. and you then basically then tackle those yeah, I like it. Yeah, so um, yeah, uh, fixing the, uh, working on the low-hanging fruit, taking small mm -hmm. steps. Yeah, I like that, and I've seen some really good examples of that as well. Um, so I, I was kind of, um, I don't know, looking at your kind of LinkedIn. There was a, there was something that came up, a topic which I thought was quite interesting. Then you you made a comment around it. You know, what's the goal of software design? Well, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I mean, if by software, this, so first of all, by software design in this context, we typically mean given software that behaves identically from an outside user perspective, how do we actually design it internally in a way that, you know, it promotes good outcomes moving forward, right? Yes. And really, one of the mistakes that a lot of software engineers do is they write software tending to optimize the writing part and the fact that it works, it works fast, right? And at the end of the day, writing software is a human activity. And if you think about it, when you need to modify some software or expand it somehow in order to deliver some value to a customer, you spend a lot more time trying to figure out where to operate and how to operate and finding the actual point of the change rather than actually writing the code to perform that change, right? Yeah. So software engineering is 90, 95% search and navigation and reading and probably 5% of actually writing. So optimizing code for fast writing as opposed to for readability, maintainability and modularity is yeah. a mistake. And typically when you write software, you want to write in a, as an example, in a small modules because the human brain cannot cope with large things, right? So 
If you write a code base or a function that is too long, well, people who are going to modify that function are going to make mistakes because it's too big to fit in their brains. And it's not because their brain is smaller than yours, it's because you don't know how to do your job. Yeah, that's right. I totally I totally agree. Um, in fact, that reminds me of uh, a, an external company that was brought in to do a big project and they, hand, they handed over the code in, in record time. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was done, uh, tick, big tick box. But when we looked at it, the... Um, um, I mean, yeah. some coders out there will, will recognize this, you know, case statements that were thousands of lines long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about a headache. And and they and they, and they hadn't refactored it so that it was kind of copy and paste in all kinds of places. So yeah. it turned, the technical debt was just huge to the point where it was almost like, let's start again, you know. Um, so I think I think that's important, you know, that, um, that uh, you know, we, uh, we do we do think about the kind of software design and, and the maintainability because the cost for that, I imagine the huge, have you seen any projects where the cost has been eye-watering? So uh, pretty much all projects. So the, <laughs> the problem, the problem is, but, but if you think about it now, now for, for a second, let's even move out from software development in any company that produces value for a customer. There are only two kinds of activities or there should be. One activity is we produce value for a customer, as in we're actually working on a piece of code that will solve the customer problem and that customer is ready to compensate us for the trouble. Yeah. Or we've, we do something that facilitates future actions that are either facilitating actions or production line. All else is waste, right? Yeah. And the problem is that when I write software, the fact that you know there is a short-term output, which is, I don't know, I need some sort of delivery goal that I had, like, I don't know, I need to change how this screen looks so that the user can use it better, right? Fair enough. But the problem is that depending on the internal quality of the software, I will have a lingering uh, effect potentially forever for the entire duration of the company mm. on every other future activity that will involve that piece of software that I wrote. Because if I wrote it well, it will be a joy to maintain that, to expand that, everybody will understand it, right? And if I wrote it wrong, it will basically be impossible to read and understand. People will do mistakes. It's going to be almost needed to be redone from scratch when we need to expand it, right? Yeah. And the problem is not only the cost of the ongoing part typically tramples the short-term one by several orders of magnitude, but the problem is that it creates a, a spiral because typically poor internal quality means that people will take shortcuts in order to deliver and that will exacerbate the problem. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's sometimes, um, again, coming back to the subject of Agile, uh, people think it's about delivering faster. It's mm -hmm. That's not the whole picture. In fact, very little. It's about the quality. It's about the maintainability and, and, yeah, and the creativity, innovation around it. You, you're right, right? But, but I still think there is a point worth mentioning, which is you do move faster as a company by, so, so this is the thing, people would say that, you know, um, quality and speed are a trade-off, but they aren't, they are the same thing. So mm -hmm. internal quality is speed. When you measure speed by value delivered over time spent delivering it. Yeah. If you measure it around, uh, I don't know, code lines deliver perhaps not but it's not important it's not what matters yes yes i agree yeah that's quite an interesting one there isn't a trade-off it's a yes and you know and mm -hmm. in the long term in the in the bigger picture it is actually quicker 
it's uh, you, the quality yeah. actually causes uh, a uh, I, I, I remember again back from my kind of coding days if i come to a bit of uh, code that's been written badly and not maintainable then you're spending a lot of time undoing understanding yeah. and then redoing you know um exactly. so i'm gonna uh, as we come towards the end of the arc of the podcast um i'm gonna pretend to be a, a tech genie okay mm-hmm. and i'm gonna offer you a wish what's your wish for your customers, for your work, for your teams, anything you want. What what would be your wish as a tech leader? So for the the industry, I would say is, you know, that universities will start teaching software engineering, as in the art of writing software for other human beings, which is totally not there. All we focus on is data structures, algorithms, and all things that are important, maybe if you work for one or two companies in the world and pretty much pointless in all others. Yeah. But, you know, this aspect of you need to write software in a way that is maintainable for the long term is completely not taught in universities. And this is crazy because it's literally your job, right? Then in terms of companies is, you know, what we just discussed, right? So if I was on lean thinking, value delivery, you know, theory of constraints, uh, how do we organize an organization to deliver those results? Rather than let's just start by what everybody is doing, whether it's right or wrong, and let's see how we can cope with it. Yeah. And, and in terms of customers, I mean, it's more or less the same because uh, a lot of these customers say, you know, there's a reason why software engineering has such a bad reputation in terms of project management, right? Where everything just like balloons and scope creeps and costs just like it's 10 times what it's supposed to be. And, you know, there should be some sort of continuous negotiation of the next increment in value delivery. Yeah. So rather than... I pay you to deliver me something in two years, which is a massive specification that I give you. And then obviously it's never gonna work. It's more like, let's start easy. I pay you to deliver something in two weeks, see how it goes, and then we contract the next two weeks and I can change my mind at any time. Yes, yeah, I like that. That's, that's good, very incremental. And again, very agile. This is the great thing about agile. If you embrace yeah. the values and principles, uh, that's what you get. You get continuous delivery of, you know, I'm almost, almost laughing when I used to be working the embedded um, mm-hmm. field, you know, the first program, the first delivery of value was Hello World on a new embedded board, you know? I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but it's actually quite a lot of work that goes into getting the system set up. So, uh, and again, finally, as, as we kind of close, um, what's your kind of key takeaway that you'd like to offer tech leader and women and uh, men and women out there i mean to women in particular i mean obviously ignore anyone who might have any other opinion you know saying that this is a necessarily a hard industry for women i mean it's not there are some bad people fair enough uh, in general the point is that if if you study it and you know and you have the confidence it's a wonderful career one one of the problems that i see you know, between the difference maybe between some male software engineers and female software engineers, it's all culture, it's all ingrained in society. Is their risk appetite when they jump jobs, right? Because, and, and why is that, right? Because we keep buying pirate toys for our kids, like male kids, and we buy, you know, princesses for females, right? So we always tell our daughters that they need to be, I don't know, composed and think carefully about what they're doing and being perfect and princess-like while we encourage 
our children, you know, in terms of songs, to experiment, to be wild, right? Yes. And this is where the power going forward in the appetite for risk when it comes to negotiation, to applying for a job that you don't know how to do necessarily that well, and figuring out all the way, right? And you need to see this pattern where males are more aggressive into these kind of things and it pays out in the long term. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. In fact, uh, having a daughter myself, that's kind of uh, made me reflect about um, but about kind of uh, how we program them from a very early age, which creates a tangent in their thinking. Yeah. So thank you very much, Mikhail. You know, it's been excellent listening to you. Very, uh, very interesting insights in terms of your leadership, your passion. Um, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Dizzy. It was great being here. Thank you. Wow. That was another great discussion, peppered with some lovely ideas and tips. Like many tech leaders we've had on this podcast, it was lovely to see another leader who fights alongside integrity, doing what's right for the organisation, what's right for the people and what's right for the end customer. So my key takeaways from the podcast were as follows. One, integrity matters, doing the right thing even when no one's looking and even putting yourself on the line if doing the right thing is going to get you into a little bit of bother. I've had to do this and even been let go for it. My second key takeaway is that software isn't just about delivering fast. It's about the art of creating something that can be maintained, expanded and extended in its complexity without ending up down technical debt rabbit holes. Thirdly and finally, a leader doesn't just need to worry about the connections and relationships between them and the people. It's about facilitating and creating an environment that naturally creates interrelationships between the team, between teams and the wider organisation. So thank you again, Mikel. It was great to have you on board and a great opportunity to hear your wisdom. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long. Live well and prosper until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.